This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Roxana Espos, Palace Shaw, and Light Ali, gathered in the spirit and the memory of our comrade Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the singer-songwriter and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're reaching out from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, a conundrum contained in a contradiction, both a confirmation and a crime scene. I often imagine Chicago wrapped in that distinctive yellow crime scene tape, Do Not Enter, Criminal Investigation Underway. These lands were stewarded for millennia by many indigenous peoples and lineages, including the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa, as well as the Menominee, Miami, Ho-Chunk, Sac, and Fox. These human beings raised their children here, created their communities, made sense and meaning of their lives for one another, They experienced the flowing and the passing of their time together, planned for the future, and buried their dead here. I acknowledge them and thank them. I apologize for the actions of my settler colonial forebears, and I join in solidarity in seeking truth, repair, and reconciliation. We also like to remember that Chicago is the home of the first non-native naturalized citizen of the Potawatomi people, Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable a man of African descent who's considered the first permanent non-Indigenous settler in the area. Sometimes referred to as the founder of Chicago, Dusable lived here with his wife, Kitty Hawa, a Potawatomi woman he married in 1770. When Kitty Hawa was removed from her home by the U.S. government as part of a series of forced displacements, Dusable followed her and their two children to Iowa, where they raised their family together. So think about Chicago as a confluence of water, wildness, peoples, hopes, and aspiration, a place of outsized and crazy complexity built up by the hands of immigrant workers and African-ancestored people escaping terror and the afterlife of slavery during the Great Migration. Justice seekers, freedom fighters, teachers, cultural workers, artists and creators, organizers and activists, all of us who stand on humanity's freedom side, Remember and Honor, a history of stolen land and resources, genocide and exploitation, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. Our poem today is Heaven Tonight, lyrics by the great Boots Riley, and this version was recorded in 2001 by his revolutionary Oakland rap group, The Coup. Let's make heaven tonight Preacher man wanna 
Cause the latest one If police come May I awake Escape and run In the morning May I have the sick To scrape the funds And if I take the plunge May it be said That I wasn't afraid To shake my tongue Show the state was gone Making sure that The calling bill of fate Was wrong Cause if they could They wouldn't probably Try to rape the sun Someone said That this is just my body Wait for the after party Wait no shut off note in air While it there's not a feet on the asphalt Dick in the dirt This system take Vic in the work Listen alert Check out the introvert In the corner with the rip in her skirt Stomach pain so she gripping her shirt Ain't never had dinner so she knows she ain't getting dessert Don't try to tell me it's her mission to hurt I got faith in the people and they power to fight We gon' make the struggle blossom like a flower to life I know that we could take power tonight Make them cower from might And get emergency clearance from the tower for flight I ain't sitting in your pews Lest you helping me resist the review Show me a list of your views If you really love me Help me tear this motherfucker up Consider this my tie for the offer cup Slim in that vicinity And though the stars are magnificent Whiskey and the midnight sky can make you feel insignificant The revolution in this tuning verse Is a bid for my love to touch the universe Struggling over wages and funds Let the movement get contagious and run Through the end when it's gauges and guns And if we win in the ages to come We'll have a chapter where the history pages are from They won't never know our name or face But feel our soul and free food they taste Feel our passion when they heat they house When they got power on the street and the police don't beat them about Let's make healthcare centers on every block Let's give everybody homes and a garden plot Let's give all the schools books, ten kids a class And give them truth for their pencils and pads Retail clerk love ballads where you place this song Let's make heaven right here just in case they wrong follow the poem with a free write, a time to reflect or write wildly without interruption, without editing. And the prompt this time is this. These are terrible times, an escalating Cold War with China, a proxy war in Europe, racialized police violence unchecked, environmental collapse on full display, fragile and often anemic democratic institutions on life support, religious authoritarianism on the rise, women's bodily integrity under sustained assault. On the other hand, 26 million people poured into the streets in response to the police murder of George Floyd. Women across a wide political spectrum have refused to accept a medieval definition of their rights, and broad forces are on the march worldwide to resist plunder and extraction and to preserve life on earth.
Charles Dickens would recognize the contradiction, the winter of despair and the spring of hope, an age of foolishness and an age of wisdom, darkness locked in combat with light. Because life is never one thing in isolation of every other thing. Yes, there's oppression, but there's also resistance. And yes, the predatory heart of capitalism is incorrigibly avaricious, aching to transform everything within reach into a profit-generating commodity. Teaching and learning are turned into the education business. Human health morphs into the healthcare industry. Art is transfigured into the art market. But our imaginations, nourished and unleashed, have the capacity to light the slow fuse of possibility. And our resistance fuels our imaginations. So pause the podcast for a minute and reflect or write on Dickens' famous lines. They were the worst of times. They were the best of times. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. I'm heading over to the Socialism Conference now. It meets every Labor Day weekend here in Chicago. And in coming weeks, I'll show several of the most illuminating and inspiring sessions from Socialism 2023. But to start us off, I sat down with Anthony Arnov and Haley Pesson, the editors of Voices of a People's History of the United States in the 21st Century. It's the latest in the series initiated by Howard Zinn and drawing continual inspiration from the deep well of his groundbreaking work. Their subtitle is Documents of Hope and Resistance, and that perfectly captures the spirit, the tone, and the essential content of this great book, Hope as a Discipline, Resistance as a Necessity. Okay, here we go. So, Anthony Arnov, Haley Pesson, it's so good to see you. Really good to be with you, Bill. Thank you for having us. And I am here to talk to you about the, well, first of all, we're here at the Socialism Conference 2023, and you're both here as organizers of the conference, correct? Why don't we say a word about the conference before we get started? Because this is a conference I've gone to forever, as long as I can remember, and it always gives me a big shot of energy. I used to have to drag Bernadine to it, but I'd always drag her to it by saying, but Amy Goodman's going to be here, or Angela Davis is going to be here. I get her to come to something, and she always loved it. She loved Dave's Irons, so she always wanted to see David. Um, she always loved the conference, and then we would go to one of the plenaries where one of the old leaders would speak, and she would say, see, this is why I didn't want to come. <laughs> some, old, some old white Marxist would hold forth, but that's our history with it. But last year was a brilliant conference, and I'm looking forward so much. So, you guys are here as organizers of the conference, right? Well, I'm not an organizer of the conference, but I have also been coming forever yeah. <laughs> since I was like very little. Really? So how many years have you been coming? Oh my gosh, that's hard. I can't even remember. I probably started in 2010. So you were 10. <laughs> yeah, I think Amazing. so. <laughs> but say a word about the conference, Anthony. Sure. Yeah, I've been coming since the 1990s. In fact, when I started coming, it was called Socialist Summer School. Oh, shit. <laughs> and it took place 
I like <laughs> that. Oberlin College yeah. in Ohio, um, which is actually where I was an undergrad. So it was it was a little odd to be going back to Oberlin soon after having graduated to attend a very different kind of conversation. But um, over time, we migrated to Chicago and kind of expanded the scope of the conference and felt that socialism conference rubric was uh, a little more inclusive. Um, and yeah, we're excited that it's grown. I think pre-registrations this year were on track for this to perhaps be the largest conference we've ever had. Uh, we also now have a live streaming component. So people who aren't able to be here for uh, whatever reason uh, can see a number of the highlights from the conference. So uh, certainly, you know, people listening to your podcast will be able to catch some of the highlights Excellent. that um, are uh, coming for the next few days of conversations with Angela Davis, Naomi Klein, a number of other authors and Robin organizers. Kelly, Ruthie Gilmore. Uh, we're we're all abolitionists here, and so we uh, we really appreciate the lineup. But you know, last year we were so impressed with not only the numbers; it, it was huge, and you couldn't even see everybody. It was like uh, kind of wonderful that way, and it was also younger and more diverse and more geographically diverse than I've ever seen it. So hopefully that trend continues. I think to so. I think it will. And in fact, last year we did some uh, follow up with people who came to the conference and found that for many it was their first conference. Um, but also many of them said that they were going to come back and bring someone new this year. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're really hoping will Absolutely. be the kind of dynamic. You know, one of the I, one of the organizations I have been part of since it began is John Brown Lives. And I met some young people at John Brown Lives two years ago. And they showed up at the Socialism Conference last year. And they called me a few days ago, and they're coming for dinner uh, this weekend. So anyway, it's very exciting to see it grow. And, and really, it, it's on one level, not surprising. I mean, we live in a divided country, obviously. And the multiplying overlapping crises are so serious. People are searching for answers. And to the extent that we can provide a larger alternative, a larger voice, I think that really matters. So hats off to you. Yeah. Great. I, I, I felt that way last year, too, that yeah. it was significantly more diverse, that I was surprised as someone who's been coming so often to meet people from organizations that I'd never heard of. Right. The most exciting one was in Orlando, Florida. There was this group of teenagers yeah. who all identified as Marxists who were organizing in their high school and had organized the protests against the Don't Say Gay bills. So right. they were those kids. I, uh, like I mean, that. it was unbelievable to, yeah. to meet them. It's so exciting when we see things like that. And it's important to go to places and realize you don't know everybody there. You know, it's kind of disappointing when you know everybody and you've heard of every organization, but it's really great. And there are a bunch of things happening this weekend that we're so excited about, starting with um, a lot of the abolitionist work here in Chicago, the prison work. Um, first session, Alice Kim and Ronaldo Hudson in conversation with Damon Williams about what we learned from the abolish the death penalty work. And that's when I really first met Alice Kim, was when she was an organizer for that. So anyway, very excited and congratulations. And I'm glad we're all here. But we're really here to talk about a book that 
you both edited called Voices of a People's History of the United States in the 21st Century, Documents of Hope and Resistance. And this is part of a long lineage, right? So maybe you'd speak a little bit about that lineage, where this book comes from. We'll refer back to the great Howard Zinn, but going forward. Sure. I can start the story, and then maybe Haley can talk a bit more about how this particular book came together. Um, but the background, as you say, comes from a rich lineage, um, not just of the work of Howard Zinn, but the work that he drew on uh, as a people's historian. So, you know, I suppose you could say the the story really starts in a significant way uh, in 1980 with the publication of A People's History of the United States, which um, is a fundamental rethinking of the way the story of U.S. history is traditionally taught and and narrated in our establishment culture and media. And Howard, um, when that first book came out, had modest expectations for, you know, this kind of counter narrative and, and what it could achieve. I think the first printing was something like 5,000 copies uh, of the book. Um, recently, People's History of the United States crossed the threshold of 4 million copies being that, sold. Right? Now, that's the official statistic, but what we know, of course, is that the number is far greater. If you consider the number of copies that have been photocopied, the used copies that have been circulated and read, the ebooks, the translations, all the other ways in which people have engaged with the people's history of the United States. But nonetheless, Howard, when he wrote that book, had an idea early on that emerged from talking to readers. Um, who came up to him and said, I was so moved by reading the words of Frederick Douglass and John Brown and Sojourner Truth and all these other people who had either been skipped over or ignored in their school textbooks or taught in a way that kind of drained them of all meaning and power. And he understood that it wasn't so much his synthesis or his interpretation, but those original voices that really were the driving force of a people's history. And he went to HarperCollins, the publisher, and said, I want to do a book that would be an anthology, a companion. And they were not interested and didn't want to publish that book. Years later, I had the chance of working with Howard, um, who I first met when I was working at a publishing house called South End Press in Boston, you may know. And um, it's interesting in connection with what you were saying today about your own work uh, in Illinois uh, carceral institutions. Howard was calling South End Press, and I just happened to be the person who picked up the phone that day, oh. to see if we could help find employment for a friend of his who was coming out of a period of incarceration in the state of Massachusetts, and he wanted to help find, you know, uh, work in an environment which, as you know, it's very hard for people coming out of prisons to find work. And out of that conversation, I was then invited by Howard to see an early reading, I think it was actually the first reading, of a one-person play he had written called Marx and Soho. Right. And from that, I ended up publishing the play, producing the play, touring with Howard around productions of that play, doing a book of interviews with Howard called Terrorism and War, 
And then being on book tour with Howard for that book, uh, this idea came up again of this companion to a people's history. And by this point, we were collaborating, we had a good rapport, and I asked him, you know, if I could help work with him on that project and, and finally realize that kind of vision. And that led to the publication in 2004 of the first Voices book that Howard and I published together. You know, it's just so random. He picked up the phone. You know, isn't that beautiful? I mean, life is such a wonderful dialectic between choice and chance. So you made your choices, you had your chances, and you seized them. So that's a beautiful lineage. But now here we are of Voices of People's History of the United States in the 21st century. Yes. So I can say a bit about how that came about. So uh, I have known Anthony through the political organizing that I've done Um as sort of evidenced earlier, I'm a red diaper baby. So actually, one of the first campaigns I was involved in was uh, getting students to sign on to free Ab- uh, Amumia Abu-Jamal, um, who's like my first hero <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> growing up. Um, but I um, was, you know, part of the International Socialist Organization. I organized on campuses um, when I was in college in uh, Western Massachusetts. And then uh, later, after I graduated with students at New Paltz, and some of that organizing was around anti-racism, some of it was around Palestine solidarity, some of it was around uh, abortion rights. But through all of it, we were actually using very much Haymarket books as a resource. Um, and so that's sort of how I came into contact with Anthony. Mm-hmm. Um uh, using that as sort of uh, ideas for changing the world and for helping to politically educate people. And so um, in terms of the book, my understanding is the book was becoming long because uh, after Howardson's death, you know, they continued to publish and, you know, think through uh, what pieces would continue to resonate in terms of bottom-up people's history, people's voices. And the book was getting to be like 700 pages. And so the publisher had the idea uh, that we should actually try a new book that was focused specifically on the 21st century that would, you know, just cover the last 20 years and talk about resistance in that period. And so at that point, Anthony called me and said, would you like to be involved in this? And I was so honored because Howard Zinn, you know, um, had been uh, so influential in my political life and my um understanding and activism. One of my favorite books is, I mean, everyone loves people's history, but it's actually Snick, the New Abolitionist that really- I love that book. Yeah. I think everyone should read that book um, as a firsthand account, um, you know, of of these things as they were happening um, in their significance. Um, And really of, you know, Zinn not being an objective historian, but saying, Mm -hmm. I'm actually an activist here, and I'm also, you know, not going to hide that. I'm actually going to report on this. So that's a wonderful book. But uh, the opportunity to be involved in this was really incredible. And so that's that's how I came on board. Yeah. I think the new abolitionist, just a, a note on that, that, you know, Barbara Ransby, writing this book, Making All Black Lives Matter, had the same idea. I'm an historian. I have all this training, all this background, all this, you know, scholarly um, tools, but I'm also an activist and I don't want to separate those two. I want to do them both. And I th- the new abolitionist absolutely blew my mind. And now we have another new, new abolitionist. And in some ways, you've captured a lot of that here. But, you know, the legacy, just one one more kind of note about the legacy is that 
Howard Zinn's shadow, not only did he influence you and me and you, but he he also, um, and generations of readers and thinkers, but he also um, still gets people like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis excited. Still, you know, he's been, he's passed away many years ago. And still, when they want to reference what's wrong with the way we talk about history, Howard Zinn is always at the top of the list. So. They're still very afraid of him. And they're afraid of him. And, that, and that's as it should be. They're afraid of Marx. They're afraid of Che. And Howard's right in that category. So it's pretty exciting. So, you know, I, I, you sent me a copy of this and I was really Tickled. And you mentioned that resistance in the 21st century, but it's documents of hope and resistance. And those two themes really resonate with almost every piece. There's a sense that we need to resist the monster that we're facing, but there's so much hope in this book. I really think this is a, a companion piece that every activist ought to have in her backpack, you know, because it, it really... It, it's it's a hopeful book. And that was quite intentional, yes? Yes, very much so. Um, because, you know, there there's so much. Once you start to, in chronological order, think about all the things that have happened from the Iraq War to, and in, in Afghanistan as well, to Occupy Wall Street, to Black Lives Matter, to Standing Rock, um, and you go into the present and a lot of the rollbacks of rights that were, you know, won that really show that history isn't linear, but that we actually still have to fight for things. Um, it, it could have been a book, really, that was quite depressing. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. I think that that actually is also part of uh, the legacy of Howard's in, in that we wanted to not just kind of create an archive of everything that's happened, but, you know, given space and constraints and thoughts about what it is we wanted people to take away. We chose to look at the voices of people who were not just saying what was wrong, but were in the process of resisting at the time. So, like, one of my favorite pieces is by Stacey Park Milburn, um, who's a disability justice activist or was passed away. Um, but talking about environmental justice and linking all of these different struggles together, um, and really talking about the fact that people who are oppressed are best positioned to actually resist the conditions of their oppression and think about what the solutions would exactly. look like. And so, you know, um, all I think that's the kind of pieces that we were very conscious about trying to put in the book, because if they were all just, you know, depressing, I don't think we'd be telling anybody new, frankly. <laughs> you know, and it's not, it's not only that they're depressing, but it, uh, if you take a hard, cold look at the world as it is, the the enemy is formidable and the and the crises are abiding and so you can feel but but i often think that despair is a weapon of the strong that that when you get into a sense of despair and hopelessness that suits them perfectly cuz we feel i i i always turn my mind to when we had half a million people on the mall in washington dc and richard nixon sent out word that he didn't know we were there and i thought that there's a reason you know front page of the new york times president says he doesn't know you're there well they know we're there and this book you know, makes it very vivid that we are not only there, but also there and everywhere. I think that I, I really salute that. That's a very important political stance, hope and resistance. Yeah. Can I, I um, go ahead. mention one other aspect of this whole project, Bill, that we, that we haven't touched on yet, but informed art thinking, and I think is important to the work, which is 
we don't think of this just as a book to be read, um, but it's very much part of a performance program. Um, and this takes the form of work in high schools and community colleges and other organizations where people are giving voice to these words um, in public settings and also in workshops and study groups and so on. Um, and it's also part of an education program where we're approaching these as primary sources to be studied and examined and understood in terms of not only their historical context, but their rhetorical power and the use of language and the creative ways in which people find new language to describe what it is we're up against and, and how we're organizing. And so for many years, there's been this whole component that's involved non-professional actors, students, and so on, but also, in some cases, well-known musicians and actors bringing these voices to public stages, theaters, auditoriums, concert halls, in order to collectively experience what it is like to hear these voices speaking to our moment and how the earlier voices from the past also speak so powerfully to this moment. Yeah, yeah I... I um I think that's terribly important to have an education slash organizing wing. And that's very much, I mean, whether it happens spontaneously or you're able to create organizational spaces where it happens, both are important. And I wondered if you know Robert Shetterly's voices, uh, Americans Who Tell the Truth. Absolutely. In I, fact, Howard is a, one of the portraits in that series. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a great series. And one of the things that Robert has done is to create a whole educational network. And he was on the podcast, but he's easy to get. You get Robert and he'll come with 10 of his portraits and tell you the story of American history through 10 pictures. You know, it's pretty, pretty wonderful, but very much a, a, a sisterly project to what you're doing, I think. As is, by the way, the Zen Education Project. Very important. And uh, the folks at Rethinking Schools. There's been a lot of cross-pollination between our work, particularly as, you know, going back to what Haley referred to, the, this moment of backlash and what you were saying, Bill, about the attacks on Howard Zinn and the teaching of his work in schools, with with books being banned, librarians under attack, teachers under attack, these educational networks are increasingly vital. I think I think you've always been involved in publishing, and I think that teachers, librarians, um, book publishers are really on the front lines. And I, I see people from the New Press to Beacon Press to Haymarket to Seven Stories, all of them getting a new burst of energy to resist the counter-revolution. And that's how I see it. I don't see it so much as a backlash. I really think that if we make one step forward in progress, we get a counter-revolutionary movement. And what we're looking at now is a fierce, uh, and and it's worth noting that in the United States and in our history, there's always a material base for that counter-revolution. There's a white supremacist base just waiting to be mobilized. And I've never seen it as mobilized as it is right now, which doesn't mean it's winning. In some ways, I think it means it's we're winning. <laughs> you know, I mean, I do. I think in some ways it means it, it, it's like it's like the whole struggle around BDS. Why does Israel feel it's so important to crush just this small, nonviolent effort? Well, because we're winning the moral argument on, on Palestine. So I, I think these are complicated things, but I do see the mobilization of librarians, teachers, and publishers as kind of frontline. So this is right in line with that. 
you know, when I picked it up, I started reading at the beginning, and then I decided it was a big book, and I didn't want to just read it from the beginning to end. And then I started feeling like it's like reading poetry. You don't pick up a book of poetry and and just turn the pages. It's it it'll wear your brain out. So I just started randomly reading, and I wanted to ask you if that was okay. Absolutely. Of course, I, I think we assumed. <laughs> You know, I'm actually always surprised when people tell me that they were reading the book cover to cover. And, you know, I think we just, I mean, I didn't assume people would do that. It does give you an interesting experience if you do that. And, you know, because we had to, yeah. <laughs> we, putting it, it together, we you had did no it choice. So we don't have to. So. <laughs> it does give you an interesting experience if you do choose to do that, which is, I think, just that you realize what movements were happening at a given time and how they influenced each other. So, you know, I might not have thought at the time that there was earlier conversations between, you know, um, well, I happen to know because I was involved with Palestine and Black Solidarity activists, right? But right. then you read a piece that's happening around, you know, Stephen Salida resisting his um, firing uh, for speaking out for Palestine, you know, and, oh, that's actually happening around right. the same time as some of these other movements. Right. What does that mean? Why are people talking in a way about, you know, feminism, but also about um, indigenous uh, solidarity or, you know, indigenous resistance? And so I think that what I kind of came away with was an understanding that the moment we're living through is one where people are much more likely, even very young activists, to draw uh, connections between different movements to sort of see intersectionality as a default politics and to see the importance of these struggles linking up, which like I'm a socialist, so I'm always excited right. about that. I'm like, we need to see the big picture, but that seems to be very deep in the moment that we're going through. And you get that if you go chronologically. On the other hand, I totally uh, don't think it's a problem and don't necessarily expect people to read the book that way. But, you know, hopefully it's like you can look through and kind of find a resource. A lot of teachers have been contacting me and saying, you know, what pieces are in the book or, you know, are, I've been using these yeah. kinds of pieces, yeah. you know, because I, I'm teaching at a very, you know, heavily sports masculine, you know, frat school. And like, I want to very consciously talk about the Me Too moment. Let me look at these right. pieces and and use them to educate people. Right. So you're giving people permission to read it randomly as I did, <laughs> yes. but also permission to read from front to back. Um, you know, when I was reading it randomly, and then I went back and I wanted to see uh, most of the things that are from the more prominent people like Naomi Klein and Angela Davis, I've read those before. But so much of it was a surprise, you know, to and and, and the way that you mixed culture, art, and politics. That's another thing. I have to really take my hat off to that because I often think that those of us who spent all of our time thinking about politics, forget that what mobilizes people, what engages people, is often humor and art and music. And And I think you do a great job of... of I'm really this. glad to hear you say that, Bill. And, and that's something I also think was so important to Howard's work. Exactly. I mean, certainly, if you ever had the chance to hear Howard speak, he was absolutely hilarious. And... Um, there's a way that uh, humor is effective not only in conveying ideas, but you remembering them, you, exactly. you them kind of sticking with you and you coming back to them. Uh, I think Howard was incredibly effective in more. that way. But also, he 
didn't just write the one play, Marx and So. He wrote other plays. He was involved in theater at a young age, including when he was a teacher in the South at Spelman College. His students included Alice Walker, Bernice Johnson Reagan, and other people who went on to have meaningful careers in the arts. His son, Jeff Zinn, was a theater director and producer. Uh, Howard really understood the power and the importance of artistic expression. And his own political radicalization came about in part through the music of Woody Guthrie. Yeah. And he always referenced the arts. He referenced novels and poetry. And and he w- he had a good way of kind of seeing the synthesis of those things. But one last word on humor. I think as somebody who doesn't, I mean, I, I think I have a sense of, I hope I have a sense of humor, but, I, you know, I'm not funny. And the people who are funny knock me out because they, I feel like humor is generous in a way that didactics never is generous. You know, you're always, if you're doing this, if you're pointing your finger and telling people stuff, it doesn't come across in the same way. And that's another admirable quality of this book is that you get Boots Riley and you get, you know, um, poets and you get other people as well as um, people who are making a really well-reasoned argument. So appreciate that very much. Um, uh I was reading randomly, and I some of the small pieces, the big pieces, Naomi Klein. I mean, the the more prominent people, but then Addie Bean. I've turned. I just accidentally opened the book to a, an eleven year old girl in Denver, Colorado, writes an open letter to Donald Trump. I almost fell off my chair. I just thought, now that's just so powerful to anybody um, who wants to see the world purely, you know. I think I, I think little kids, I mean, I, I have lots of grandchildren, and the little kids, they show you the meaning of life by living fully and with all five senses. But a kid who's 11, 12, 13, those middle years, big brain, very focused, and abolition makes sense to them because they're not into the world of compromise and <laughs> shadings and shavings. If something's wrong, don't do it. You know, I mean, it's simple, you know, don't build a pipeline, not, you know, carbon offsets. I mean, you know what I mean? So I just fell out reading Addie being, um, I'm so glad that you felt that way. I, I I love that piece as well, and how how defiant she is. Like, I'm going to talk to the president this way. Good, uh, but uh, yeah. also, um, you know, one of my favorite kinds of performances that voices puts on is actually with very young people the yeah. high school performances they're always to me the most powerful even though we've had you know the privilege of having a book launch that featured you know very very prominent a-list actors who were wonderful and moving the to me there's um a lot more of a rawness and a sense of, you know, the way that these ideas are affecting people as they're speaking when you hear very young people speak them, but also the fact that there are very young people in the book. It's not just, oh, we're being influenced. It's like, they're actually, you know, I think the youngest person in the book is nine years old. The oldest person is in their seventies. And so, you know, there's, um, an intention we put there in terms of range um, and in terms of who's actually at the front lines of this or who could potentially be. And, you know, it's, 
sort of, you know, important to me that it is an educational tool because I imagine that one of the places these could be read or would be inspiring to people or resonate with people, you know, would be young people who were being told are not critical thinkers, you know, right. shouldn't be critical thinkers because God forbid they get some good ideas about, you know, what they could possibly do to change the world. Yeah, the propaganda about young people is so overwhelming. And and even the, our cultural notion that teenagers are trouble. And what you have here is a good range of young people who are telling the world, telling all of us uh, how we ought to behave, how we ought to be thinking about issues of fairness and, and justice and balance and peace. You know, I, I very irritating book that was written several years ago by Todd Gitlin was called Letters to a Young Activist. And my youngest son read it and said, what the hell? You know, I mean, who is this old person preaching to us? And he then organized with two of his friends a book called Letters from Young Activists. And oh. it was telling us, you know, um, what it looks like to be 19 or 20. And don't give us the lessons as if, you know, it's a problem. You're, you're much younger than I am. Um, Anthony, but you know there are three stages of adulthood. You know this, right? I don't. Young Bill, adults. I, I think you're going to enlighten me. Yes, young adults. Not, that's, not that's as young Haley. as I am. Yeah, but you, you, you're a young adult. You're the middle years, and I'm looking good. That's, 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 yeah, that's the big euphemism. People always say, "Man, you're looking good." Yeah, that I know what you're saying. But in any case, um, you have a good balance of young, middle, and looking good um we tried yeah. we did want it to be intergenerational and that very was much very is. conscious as well it very much is and it's people you know i was so impressed again i got to this kind of randomly but i was so impressed for example that the to see the dissenters there the dissenters for those of you who don't know is an anti-war anti-militarist group that grew out of black lives matter in chicago and the folks who started it are close, close comrades, they'll actually be at the at the meeting this weekend. But their idea was, let's link uh, militarism at home and militarism abroad. And they, they are on fire as organizers, as thinkers, and they're quite young, and they're really doing great work. And here you have their opening statement in this book. I thought that was admirable. Well, yeah, we, we were very conscious that we were working within this framework of the United States, which is problematic to us. <laughs> very much so. And that as internationalists, as people who understand that our, our fights are global, um, and as people who are working in the tradition of Howard Zinn, who is very actively anti-imperialist and centered questions of war, um, we had to find ways of pushing beyond those boundaries at the same time as working within the, you know, the actual national context in which we, we live and we're organizing. Um, and so that inc meant including voices from Hawaii, fr from Guam, from Puerto Rico, the voice of Arundhati Roy speaking yep. at the Riverside Church against the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, but doing so from the perspective of someone uh, who's uh, based in India, but coming in effort to build a global anti-war movement against that U.S. imperial intervention. Um, and then also the dissenters who are very impressive and not making the mistake that unfortunately we see a lot of other people on the left making of thinking that the only form that imperialism takes is U.S. imperialism, um, but being very principled about opposing all forms of imperialism. I think that's important. I think it's also a... There are a set of traps right there. I mean, one trap is 
you know, being a, being a nationalist or thinking of your socialism is just about us. But the other trap is, you know, thinking that as a, as an American, say, I'll just give a stereotype as some older American white Marxist male, thinking that you can call the shots on who represents the actual working class in Brazil or the actual, and and you lose your bearings when you go down that road. So being principled is really important in my mind, but but it, part of the principle is we oppose our own imperialism and we don't choose who the Palestinians should follow. We say self-determination for Palestine. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. But I think right now, the the greater danger that I see is of people who are making apologetics and excuses for other forms of, for, for of example, government around the invasion repression. Of, uh, In particular, that's the most obvious. The most obvious is example. the invasion of Ukraine. And what, what that always makes me think is that Americans have a hard time holding two ideas in their mind exactly. at the same time. One idea being, you know, that Putin's invasion is an absolute monstrosity, illegal, immoral, deadly, imperialistic, and NATO is nothing nice. I exactly. think you have both of those ideas at the same time. Yeah, and I think the dissenter statement squares that very much perfectly. Very much um, and also doesn't make the mistake of, of a kind of a U.S. exceptionalism in reverse, yeah. which is to see exactly. the U.S. as the only sole actor, exactly, and and therefore only seeing that the enemy of uh, my enemy is my friend, yeah. no, as opposed exactly. to understanding right or to erase the Ukrainians' own resistance yeah. in this fight. Exactly. I, I was asked to blurb a book and. I did write a blurb, but they wouldn't run it because the book was about, uh, it was a brilliant analysis of the crimes of NATO in the U.S. and Europe, and it was really well argued. But in the course of it, the author um, puts the Russian invasion in scare quotes, the so-called Russian invasion. So I wrote a blurb and I said, masterful job of uh, of understanding what NATO is doing in the world. But Russia's invasion was illegal, immoral, deadly, imperialistic. And the author called me up and said, can I just cut this one sentence? I said, no, you can't. You know? Good so, for you, Bill. Yeah, so they yeah, can run yeah. it. I mean, but that's, that's the kind of problem that the left is facing now. The other problem I think we're facing, which is much different even than when you were a young activist, is that um, in Vietnam, it was very easy to be in pro National Liberation Front, pro North Vietnam, and it's a little muddier out there now um, in terms of the alignment of forces and the direction the world's going in. So I think it's it's a hard time, but again, clarity. So let me ask you this, each of you, um, if you were to sum up this political moment, where we are, how would you name the moment politically? I would say we're in a moment of intense polarization, but that is both a challenge and an opportunity, right? Because on the one hand, I think people are, you know, as we've seen on the far right, very emboldened right now um, when we look at the attacks that are 
you know, in many ways represented in this book, it, you know, people who have written for this book are being banned, you know, um, whether that's Kianga Yamada Taylor or uh, Barbara Ransby or Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, all who have pieces in this book. There's an attempt to truncate and limit those ideas and demonize them um, and, you know, make them inaccessible. And that's also producing resistance by teachers and by um, educators and librarians, as you mentioned earlier, who are saying, we're going to teach truth. We're actually going to teach these ideas to people um, and these voices and, you know, and not be, um, you know, uh, uh, intimidated. But it's also, it's not like this is just an ideas fight. This is about a much bigger fight about the direction of the society we're in. And we know that at the same time as the far right is ascendant in certain ways, that left-wing ideas have become very popular. And, you know, I think often people attribute that primarily to the campaign of Bernie Sanders. I think Sanders is actually a product of the oh, fact right. that socialism was becoming popular precisely because of the failures of both uh, parties to actually... Uh, improve people's lives in any meaningful way while inequality got worse and worse and worse and then that much worse for people with oppressed groups, right? Yeah. And people are not dumb. People are actually making those conclusions. I think the challenge we're in is we're not nearly as organized as we need right. to be to actually uh, pose sort of an alternative to those things. But I actually think that potential exists because if you talk to people, especially young people, you know, it it's kind of like anti-capitalism is much more common sense for people. Um, this system doesn't work for anyone. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think that's so true. But when you, I mean, I remember after Obama was ran his first campaign, there was a survey done among people 18 to 24. Socialism had a more favorable rating than republicanism. So, you know, I mean, I think we've got that. But then you say, but we're not, we, we need to be more organized. So what do we do? What is to be done? That is Sorry. the million-dollar question, <laughs> and I, I like how you put it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how we get here, but to me, one of the big deficits that we're facing is that we, we don't just lack organizations. We also have had attacks on previous organizations, right? Yeah. There's not a link in the way that we would have hoped between mm -hmm. the revolts of the 60s and the 70s. Um, and the struggles of today, except thankfully in people like you who are organizing, but there's, there's, you know, repression and there's co-optation and all kinds of things that make, uh, rebuilding those things really paramount. I agree. But I think in many ways, I was part of the young upsurge called the new left and uh, the, the new left, the name, even the name, the new left had a great strength, which is we were breaking from the Stalinist left, but it had a great weakness, which is we were going to be brand new and invent everything all over again. And that is exactly the problem you're talking about today. Yep. On the one hand, you don't want to glorify and romanticize the 60s. I can't tell you how many people were contemporaries of mine are nostalgic for a ship that already left the shore. I can't imagine why. You know, I mean, so many more interesting things are happening now, but we're, you know, how do we, how do we tap into that and make both organization with an organizational memory and so on? But, but maybe Anthony, you would say a word about how do you define this political moment and what is to be done? Well, I, I agree very much with Haley's perspective on this. I would just add maybe one other dimension, which is that this is a global crisis. Right. Um, it's not just a crisis of the U.S. left. It's a crisis of the international left. And so these questions of the gap between sentiment, 
between revolutionary possibility, between the kind of tasks of the left, and the organizational strength and infrastructure is enormous on a global scale as, as, as it is here. And so therefore the question is of what it, will it take to build an infrastructure of resistance that is global, that can obviously be meaningful and engage in the particularities of our distinct situations wherever we may be located, but that has to be making connections. The global crisis of war, of the environment, of the economy, these are global questions. Racial reckoning, the environmental Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all of these things are global. And, you know, I, it makes me go back to wanting one big union, but I want that one big union to be worldwide, and then we'll have a general strike. It'll all be fine. Um, <laughs> that's, 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 that's me being my most dreamy lunatic self. If well, I we do need to thing, uh, dream and be lunatics. Oh, yes, true. <laughs> Um, if I may add one thing, I mean, we're actually at the perfect place. At least the four of us don't have to come up with a solution, you know, today That's by ourselves. Right. We're Thank literally you. at a conference yes. where this is uh, the what is the to be done question is is exactly what we'll be discussing all weekend. And in many ways, the, you're, you're right. Not only are the four of us not going to come up with it, this conference isn't going to come up with it. It mm -hmm. comes from the struggles that you document here right and that's where our learning happens that's yes. where we you know we that's the real pedagogy is in the street and in the schools and in the workplaces and and i see it everywhere you know the i told you i think i told you all that um my my son is the Chicago strike captain for the WGA, and oh, um, congratulations! Couldn't be prouder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, um, but but it, it, that's one example of many. Starbucks workers, you know, mm -hmm. Amazon workers, the airline stewardesses, and on and on. Um, people are looking at at where we are and saying to themselves, we have to get organized. We have to be part of that. But I always worry, especially as I make my stereotypical old white male Marxist, think that they can solve these things in a conference room or in a in a study. It can only be solved, in my view, on the street. And and the more we see the interconnections. One one other thing on that that just popped into my head, you may know that in Kansas, uh, ALEC has this, the um, what is it called, the American? Legislative Exchange I Council. Knew, I knew you would know. They are always pushing legislation, but the current thing is to not only have states pass bills that they will boycott companies that boycott Israel, but they've made the connections for us. They now are passing a bill in Kansas that says if you boycott Israel, timber, oil, guns, they say every issue and say if you boycott any of those things, you can't do business with the state. Thank you very much. I was only interested in the environment, but you mean Israel's part of it? Yes, it is. <laughs> you know? And I think they're making the intersectional, and they're right to in a way because it, they are all connected. And but anyway, you were going to say they are. Well, I was just going to say you reminded me of a quote from another old white male Marxist that I very much value. Um, that actually we reference in the opening of this book. Um, it's a quote from Raymond Williams, who is a Welsh Marxist who really understood the power of culture and wrote, I think, some deeply underappreciated and important work. Uh, but one of his books was called Resources of Hope. Nice. And, and that was a phrase he used to describe the kind of distilled lessons of historical struggles right. and movements. Um, 
And I think that's very much what we hope this book will be, a resource of hope, and that, that people can learn from these uh, movements and these voices that, as you say, come out from the struggle, um, and that hopefully will be organic and meaningful and new struggle as we move forward. Right. I think, you know, I also think that when we talk about the overlap and crises, I sometimes think that the left paints itself into a little corner and says, uh, either our ideas are so precious that nobody but us can understand them, yeah. or we're so aggrieved and so under attack that we have to kind of be in a bunker on the defensive. This book has the opposite stance. This book says, stand up, be heard, speak out, rise up. And, and that to me is the only way we can. And, and frankly, I, I don't know that I read it in here, but I, I've thought for many, many years that the 10 issues I care the most about, I'm in the majority in this country. Now, a lot of people would say, of all the leftists, I'm really marginal, but I don't buy it. I don't think I'm marginal. I think I am right in the middle on questions, right in the middle of the country on questions that matter, whether it's abortion rights or queer rights or anti-war. This is, but we haven't, we have to get a bigger, smarter, more connected voice to amplify that. And in some ways, the voices of people's history is exactly that voice, right? <laughs> um, no, you just said it very beautifully. Um, I appreciate everything that you apparently got out of the book, um, because I think that's very much what we're trying to do. So I, I have nothing to add. <laughs> well, let me say that in my random opening of the book, I came across a piece called Never Again, Not for Anyone, Not Just the Jews. Oh, yes, and, yes. Um, it happens that I came across it when Lita Hirschman-Levy was staying at my house a few days ago. Lita and Allende and Malik were here visiting his family, and they stayed with us for four nights, and we got to cuddle the kid. And Allende, I don't know if you know Allende, well, Allende went to school with my son Malik, and so my son Malik likes to think that their baby is named after him. I don't know that he is. <laughs> but anyway, so I was able to tell Lita what a surprise it was to find her here and how terrific it was. Yeah, and Lita is also an actor and has not only read in a number of our performances over the years, but has been a teaching artist working in our schools program in New York City. Oh. So then to also be able to include her very powerful essay um, was just a, a wonderful example of these kind of organic connections between yeah. the performance aspects, the educational aspect, the organizing aspects of our work. And, and I also want to give credit, actually, to Lita and all the actors who helped us to workshop some of the pieces. Uh, that is, you know, some of the pieces we edited down slightly, um, of course, with permission <laughs> from the authors, right. but also... Um, getting a sense that the pieces would read well on the page and also out loud. You know, sometimes a piece we weren't sure whether it would do both, or you might in your head think, oh, I think this will sound, you know, I'm not sure if this will sound as good. They really, you know, did us a service in reading out loud for us and performing, you know, just to us so that we could say, oh, you know, how did this make us in the room feel? That's great. And I think the, the theme of Lita's piece, Never Again, Not For Anyone, Not Just The Jews, it's, it's one of the very compelling arguments about being pro-Palestine and not being anti-Semitic at all. Um, but thinking when you were growing up that when we said never again about the Holocaust, it didn't just mean us, it meant everyone. And so to see Israel, you know, many, many years ago, take a turn toward, I mean, being a colonial settler, 
a country very much like the United States. Anyway, I was thrilled to find that. I want to ask you one more thing, if I may, and maybe you have other things you'd like to add, but our seminar, our, our podcast is called, is subtitled A Seminar on Freedom. Um, it's under the tree, and under the tree is a reference to the freedom schools and the civil rights movement. When, and and it, it comports with what we were just talking about, that when we're talking about education, education can happen everywhere. Can happen in the streets, on the picket line, often does um, in the boycott, uh, or under a tree in a in a park with people sitting around talking. You and I actually were was it Roosevelt Island we were on when yes with uh, VJ Prashad and we were kind of sitting under a tree. It was a pretty informal kind of uh, workshop space. But but I, the the subtitle is a seminar on freedom. So maybe you'd say a word about. When you think about the concept of freedom, which is such a contested, overused, trite, uh, you know, cliched term in our culture, um, because there's everything from the courage to be free by Ron DeSantis to the Visa card that's called Freedom Forever. <laughs> you know? and, and so it means many, many things. But when you think about the word freedom and having participated in the freedom movement, what comes to your mind? What do you think about Oh, that's going to make me a little emotional. But I um, immediately think of the Brie Newsom piece in the book where she says, I took down the Confederate flag because I'm free. In this country, to say that in the context of resistance from the thing that goes all the way back to this country's founding on slavery and genocide, this country is constantly saying we are free mm -hmm. in a country where most of us are not. And to say, no, my resistance is what makes me free, is what gives me hope. That to me is what um, I would say, you know, is a, is a better definition of freedom and is a much more hopeful one. Brilliant. That's uh, very hard to follow what Haley just said, but I, I will just add that if I think of the soundtrack of resistance that has been most meaningful to me, and I think of how often the word freedom has been at the heart of some of the most liberatory music and creative expression, I could build a rich playlist of songs for which, you know, the singing of the word freedom is such a transcendent and transcendental and you know, fundamental emotional appeal to what it is ultimately at the heart of our fights for justice that I can't quite articulate what that is in, in uh, words that are, are compelling. But I think listening to that music together and listening to it with other people, there's something that that conveys that's at the heart of what we're organizing around. You know, it's, it's, um, what you both said is just uh, very meaningful to me. I, I, I think of, I think of a time when I was arrested opposing the war in Vietnam, and I'd been beaten up, and I was in a, pa a, a police wagon, uh, heading to Cook County Jail, and I remember I had a bloody head, and I was, you know, a mess, and so was everybody else in there. And I remember feeling, I am free. I'm ecstatically free. And it's it's this idea that the freedom isn't sitting on a couch smoking a joint, although I'm all for that. But that's not where freedom comes alive. And you think of Fred Moten saying, our freedom dreams were born in the slave ships. That's where they were born. They were born when we faced unfreedom unequivocally. And um, and there's something beautiful about that. Um, so I want to thank you both for spending this time with me. I've been a long-time admirer of Anthony Arnoff forever. And uh, 
And now I'm a huge admirer of Haley Passon. I, I think you've done a great job here. And I just appreciate so much your work over the years and your work with this book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. This was really a wonderful conversation. Are you going to go on book tour? We're sort of doing that in a way. Uh, we have, um, uh, I'm already forgetting the title, but I know that we have in October uh, with National Nurses United a Voices event which uh, the whole conference looks amazing, by the way. I'm now looking at their sessions. <laughs> well, you know, you should go on book tour. And uh, we have great connections with a few Chicago bookstores. And so we'll bring you to Pilsen Community Books, 57th Street, Seminary Co-op, Women and Children First. But last time I remember you were on book tour, you were on book tour with a book that was echoing a book of yeah, it was called A Rock, The Logic of Withdrawal, which I, I took the title from Howard's book, Vietnam, The Logic exactly. of Withdrawal. Exactly, and you spoke at the University of Illinois. We had about 40 people there, and it was really done in conjunction with anti-war people. In Absolutely. Words, it wasn't a book tour just promoting a book, right. it was promoting a movement. So I want you all to do that. I think that's a really good idea. Um, I'll fund it. I don't know how I'll fund it. Oh, from proceeds from the podcast. That's how I find it. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to be rich in no time. <laughs> you know? um, but thank you again, Anthony. Appreciate it. Thanks you so again much. so much, Bill. It's an honor. Just as we had edited this episode and were about to post it, two young activists contacted us and asked if we could talk about their struggle and their recent arrest. Of course. Their story is so closely aligned with the message of the book we were discussing with Haley and Anthony that we thought we should add a few minutes from our conversation right here. I'm very excited to be joined right now by two young activists who are part of the Tampa Five. And that's a, a protest that's been going on for some time of really national significance, national importance. But I think I'd like to start by introducing you. This is Chrisley Carpio and Lauren Pinheiro. And so glad that you could join me. They're part of the Tampa Five, an activist movement, of a set of actions that really has national significance. And it's important for all of us to understand it. So thank you for coming and welcome. I know you're on a national speaking tour. You're here in Chicago. We're probably several blocks away, but we're doing this on Zoom anyway. Um, so I'd like you to begin by just talking a bit about yourselves, about the Tampa Five, the protest, why you're involved in it, and where where things stand right now. Sure. Yeah, so my name is Lauren Panero, as we said. Um, I'm a recent graduate at the University of South Florida and a member of the Tampa Bay chapter of Students for a Democratic Society. So at the time of this protest, I was um, majoring in sociology and minoring in women's and gender studies. Um, and I had been a part of SDS since fall 2021 when we were campaigning to get the school to defund its police department, specifically to demilitarize its police department and to do it, divest from Israeli apartheid. Um, and since then, we've also been campaigning to increase black enrollment on campus. So that's how I got involved in SDS. And then I don't know if you want to introduce me. My name is Chris Licarpio. Um, I've been a longtime member and also supportive of SDS, even though I haven't been a student <laughs> for quite a while. Um, I was actually a campus worker who came out to the protest um, to also, because I think that it's not just students who should say no to House Bill 999, but everyone involved at the school, including people who work there. I worked in admissions as an ad admissions evaluator. 
Yeah, and we're both um, part of the Tampa Five, which is a group of five activists, uh, three of which are students. One is a campus worker, Chris Lee, and the other is a community member. Um, and we're five activists who were arrested and brutalized at the University of South Florida for protesting against Ron DeSantis' racist attacks on education. And how do you how do you think, I mean, I mean, what got you started? Because DeSantis has been kind of campaigning for a long time, and he's part of, uh, he may be the one of the noisiest voices uh, against free speech, against um, the freedom to read. Um, you know, the Tracy Hall, who's the new head of the American Library Association, her fighting slogan is free people read freely. And of course, uh, her enemy is your governor, Ron DeSantis, because he doesn't believe you should read freely. He believes that we should restrict what people can read. Um, but what was the trigger that you got you you all motivated and got you to the position where you were um in the in the sights of law enforcement yeah i mean there was multiple things leading up to the event that kind of it made us want to protest right right so um DeSantis has been attacking the people of Florida on all fronts, but we especially started to notice him ramping out up his attacks on education. So he started with K through 12 with the Stop Woke Act, where he prohibited how the schools discussed race and gender, um, which meant that AP African American Studies was no longer provided for Florida students, as well as AP Psychology, because it discusses gender. Um, and then they watered down the history of important Black figures like Rosa Parks and banned books like T Toni Morrison's Blue Eye. So this is kind of the beginning of his attacks on education, but he quickly moved to higher education. He did not just stop at the K through 12. Um, so he started with his takeover of New College. Um, and what he did is he removed their board of trustees, placed his own board of trustees there. Um, and the first thing that they did is remove all offices related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, they later also abolished their uh, gender studies program as well. Um, and obviously he did not stop with just New College because New College was just the blueprint of what he wanted all of the other colleges to look like. So he had requested information on students um, use of gender affirming care services on all campuses at our schools. Um, and our school, the University of South Florida, actually handed that information over to him, despite students having huge protests, having petitions going around and voicing their opposition to this. Um, they also, he also requested information on diversity, equity, and inclusion programs across the state. And that led to our president, Real Law, to put the search for vice president of DEI on pause because of the uncertainty of the future of that office. So all of that was going on. And then House Bill 999 was introduced um, into the legislature. And it was later passed as SB 266. But this is a bill that uh, prohibits funding towards diversity programs, ethnic studies, women's and gender studies, and multicultural groups. So we saw all of this happening. We saw that our school was already handing over information to Santos. We saw what happened to New College. And we knew that we had to protest. We knew that protest is what won us the ethnic studies and women's and gender studies back in the 60s and 70s. So that is what kind of prompted us to have our own protest. I see. And and another word about the new college situation, because that certainly is the cat's paw of DeSantis's strategy. And I think that's made the new college protests and the new college um, transition has made a, a lot of national news. So I think people are aware of it. But but say one more word about what new college was for people who don't know um, what, a, what a unique and interesting experimental college it was. Yeah, yeah. New College is definitely a very interesting college compared to all the other state colleges in Florida. Um, it's actually only about an hour and a half south of uh, USF. So it's um, in Sarasota, Florida, and it's very much known as a progressive, inclusive liberal arts college. Most of their students are 
LGBTQ, they have a lot of different um, elements on play. Like they're very, they're very, a lot of them are activists in a way, right? They have a lot of protests um, and they also are very close and have a tight community. Um, and DeSantis's takeover of New College has kind of destroyed that in a way. I mean, a lot of people, as I read uh, last week, a lot of people have left, a lot of faculty have left, but a lot of students have transferred out of New College because they went expecting a certain kind of open uh education based on inquiry and and curiosity and passion and and found now that it wasn't that at all so so that's been going on and then i i read also that it's been replaced by a lot of athletic scholarships did you read yeah. that yeah yeah that's true yeah i actually went to a new college event kind of recently and they spoke a little bit about this um there are still a lot of students on those that are committed to saving their community right there's still a very strong sense of community at the college um but they did mention that with the um, increase of athletes at the school, it, it has brought a different culture to the school. Um, and it actually led to them running out of housing on campus. So a lot of students are living in hotels right now. Um, wow. So it's definitely shifted the way the college is working. You know, I don't want to hate on athletes because they, they also have a place uh, in all parts of society. But it is to the extent that athletics has become big business for a lot of institutions of higher education. We're we're in every every state, basically every state in the union. But in Illinois, the football coach is paid much more than the governor, you know, because that's where the money is, right? So it, it is disappointing. But but it's not the athletes themselves that are problematic. It's a certain culture and a certain kind of capitalist underpinning that that makes it kind of you know under it undermines what what I think you and I believe. An education should be all about starting with the fact that a true education for free people begins with the premise that you need no one's permission to interrogate the world. Interrogating the world is your business. That's what you're supposed to do. Interrogate and engage the world. So this is certainly a move against that. But University of South Florida is much bigger than the new college, right? The new college was kind of a small experimental mm -hmm. school. How big is USF? About 50,000 students. And New College is about 700 yeah. for content. Yeah. 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 So they went after, because DeSantis is a bully. So he went after the smallest school, right, um, to make an example of them and left the biggest schools for last. I, I don't know how you look at it. I mean, do you look at it like um, places like the New College and folks like yourselves are are winning in some sense of some intellectual or moral sense. And that's why the hammer comes down. Or do you feel like you're really just victims in this situation? Yeah, I think it's all in reaction to the growing movements of young people and students um, at these schools and at other schools, you know, like they're targeting um, students who want to, you know, like one of the very first things SDS protested was um, DeSantis' 15-week abortion ban, right? And students went up to the Capitol there. They actually got kicked out of the House chambers um, and got trespassed from the Capitol. So students have been protesting for a minute now. And we know, you know, just how, you know, just recently there was an uprising across the whole, not only the whole country, but across the whole world saying, you know, there should be um, accountability for police. And, you know, young people have not really stopped protesting since. So I think... Um, because of the, you know, kind of the the growing strength of the movement, DeSantis is coming afterwards looking to put a stop to that, first trying to criminalize protesting in the streets with House Bill 1, which would have um, legalized people hitting protesters who were in the streets with their cars, right? And that got defeated by protests. And now he's coming after people at schools saying, 
um, not only are we going to ban these studies in these academic programs where, you know, like Black, Latino and Chicano students, for instance, and Asian students could learn their actual histories, um, but they actually, in the latest iteration of the ban that passed, they included social justice organizations too. So SDS is now, now banned. Um, so I think that, you know, but we are winning because um, it's clear that DeSantis is unpopular, even though it's been scary, you know, having the case that we have, having like felony charges that carry up to 10 years for three of us and then five years for the other two. Um, that we've still been able to unite a lot of groups who want to uh, protest DeSantis and protect the right to speak out against DeSantis. Um, the ACLU, Hillsborough, NAACP, um, labor unions, including the West Central Labor Council, um, have all spoken at our, we actually had an emergency defense conference that 130 people came out to. Um, and a lot of groups have passed resolutions for us already. So I think in that sense, we are winning because we're making, you know, um, DeSantis's uh, right wing agenda, a big social question. Um, we're, we're making even our case a big social question, calling to drop the charges. Um, and I don't know what the outcome of the case will be. But I think that, you know, the more that we can fight against DeSantis's agenda, the better. And the fact that we're even facing charges in the first place shows that we're winning, right? They're only retaliating and charging us and trying to put us in prison because they're afraid of us speaking out. They're afraid of other people joining our movement. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, people across the state of Florida do not stand with Ron DeSantis. There's been so many protests up there, every single bill, and that's why they're trying to silence us. And and you say, let's get back up a minute because you said you're you're facing pretty harsh sentences. What were you arrested for and what did you do? No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I know you did something, but, but, but I mean, what were you arrested for? What were you charged with? Yeah, I mean, we were, so it was at a protest on March 6th where we marched to the president's office, uh, Rhea Law, her office. Um, we were in the lobby of the building um, for not even five minutes and we were just standing there holding signs and chanting. It was a pretty standard protest that you'll see in a lot of colleges, um, but about Less than five minutes in, there was about 15 USF police officers there. Um, the chief of police instigated violence by grabbing a protester while she was speaking. So mid-sentence, without warning, she almost toppled to the ground. And from there, all of the police officers began to beat and brutalize students. Um, and so they ended up arresting four people that day. That includes Chris Lee, as well as Gia Davila, Laura Rodriguez, and Jeannie Kida, um, who were arrested with a felony for a battery on a law enforcement officer, which carries five years in prison as well as two misdemeanors, resisting arrest without violence, and disrupting campus activity. Um, I wasn't arrested originally on that day, um, but I was continuing to speak out. I was going to protests on campus. I was talking to the press. We had a lot of press conferences, a lot of interviews. And because I was continuing to be very vocal about um, what happened to us that day and also against Ron DeSantis, they ended up charging me a month after the fact. So I faced all of the same charges. But you were a month later. Okay, this is yep. not... This is not completely untypical, but but I'm really sorry about it. And I, I guess I want to ask you a couple of quick things. One is, how can people get a hold of you or how can they get a hold of the organization? Yes. So at the end of our um, 130-person um, defense conference, we formed the Emergency Committee to Defend the Tampa Five. Um, and it includes SDS chapters, um, the organizations that came out to speak on our behalf. Um, the National Alliance Against Race and Political Repression was present also. Um, so we've got this big coalition now of, uh, and we've been putting out calls to action around all our court appearances. We have a website, um, defendthetampa5.org. And on it is a take action page. So defend the type of five dot org slash action. 
where um, we asked people to donate because our bail fund was super expensive. <laughs> we emptied fifteen thousand, fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, wow. exactly. It was really high Amazing. bail. Um, we're asking people to sign a petition, and particularly if you're a member of an organization, to not only sign the petition, but to we have a sample resolution. Um, on the website as well. So to pass a resolution saying drop the charges, Susie Lopez, um, and to even mail that to the state attorney, um, Susan Lopez, who, by the way, is not elected. She was appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis because he removed the last state attorney for um, speaking out against the reversal of Roe v. Wade. Um, but yeah, donating, sign the petition, especially as an organization, mail the state attorney. And then um, a big thing is we go to trial December 12th. That's when trial proceedings start. We'll be putting out um, calls for protests as the emergency committee to defend the Tampa Five. And we'd like people to answer our call um, and help us get the charges dropped. Well, I'm going to come to Tampa. I want to be there. So, um, yeah. but, but, but let me repeat, defend the Tampa Five, the letter five, I mean, the number five, defend the Tampa Five dot org. Yeah. And people should go to that website, get the petition going, um, send money. Let's support these folks who are, you know, doing the work for all of us. I mean, there's no question about it that this is not a single issue. This is not a single spot. This is a national problem, a national reaction. And I, I don't call it a backlash. I call it a counter a counter revolution. You know, if you look at the number of, of Black people in prison in 1970, and it's, a, it's multiplied astronomically in 30, 40 years. And you think about it, that's criminalizing a community that's kind of what happened and and uh this is has a similar kind of stench to it so but i would also like you to know that i i have never resigned i was a member of sds starting in 1965 and i never resigned so i still have my membership card over here uh, and, uh, <laughs> and you know and and the membership card when when my membership card was printed, it be, on the back is the beginning of the preamble of the Port Huron statement. It says, "We are people. We are people of this generation, raised in at least modest comfort, residing now in universities and looking unevenly at the world we inherit." And I often think about that little one line because I'm still that person. I'm a person of this generation, raised in modest comfort living in a university and looking very uneasily at the world we've inherited. And so I, I really salute you for, for taking the responsibility of, of not only opening your eyes to see the world, but to try to engage the world and to change it. I think without folks like you, we're doomed. And so I really appreciate what you're doing. And I'm really happy that we could have a short conversation about it. Um, I have a couple more quick questions. I know we we're both under a little time pressure. You're on a national tour, right? Yeah. Where have you Where have you been so far? So we've been to Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, Appleton, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and now Chicago. Um, and we're also going to be in Dayton, Ohio, um, Kent, Ohio, um, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, Detroit, Michigan. And you can Wonderful. find all of our tour dates on the website as well. And it's just the two of us because we're doing the Midwest. We also have um, a member of the Tampa Five doing the West Coast, so all the way from Washington State down to Southern California, um, even going out to Oregon. And then we have someone else um, doing um, the Northeast and then Texas and Denver, Colorado. And we're going to, as much as we can, do a big Florida leg mm -hmm. in November. 
well, damn, I love you. I mean, this is amazing. This is so good. And I think it's so great that you're as well organized as you are and you're reaching out, trying to touch other people. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned was uh, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. And I often I often think as a radical, um, as a radical revolutionary, as an anarcho-communist, I often think one of our problems is that we we have to figure out, or it's not really a problem for us, it's a contradiction within our work, which is we have to fight for the kind of reforms that we can win, but we can't lose sight of what we're really for. So I, I find the attack on DEI is so troglodyte, reactionary, insane. But then again, DEI was never my jam anyway, um, <laughs> if you know what I mean, because, because DEI has a certain aspect of... Um, respectability, a certain amount, you know, if the National Football League can have an officer, a DEI officer, I want to jump off a bridge. I mean, come on. Uh, it's, in other words, what we're really talking about, what we really want to struggle with is the institutionalized, structured racism and and homophobia and sexism and all these issues that are all interlinked and related. But our goal is not to have a DEI vice president. Our goal really is to fight racism and do away with white supremacy in our society and in our, in our institutions. These attacks are important to resist, but our goal is much bigger than defending the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. And that is the reason, you know, like, um, the DEI offices and then some, you know, something like affirmative action, which was overturned by the Supreme Court recently. They're one of the few things that exists at all. I understand. <laughs> school, right? Along with ethnic studies. Um, and because that's what the office is called, that's, you know, kind of yeah. what we have to say, defend the office. So, of for course. instance, Tampa SCS uh, was calling to increase black enrollment for um, quite a number of years. And the university actually said, yeah, we'll do it in 2020. And they've never followed up since. And now with the um, abolishment of the DEI office that's sure to happen, that's the office that would have done it, right? So, you know, we always think like, oh, like things are bad. Can they, can it be worse? And the answer is, yeah, yeah they there is you more know. that we can take away. You can't put any funding towards increasing black enrollment because the bill means that you can't fund anything yeah. focused on right. a specific race. Yeah. Right. Um, and I also, we definitely see it as part of a bigger struggle happening in the country. Yeah. It's not just one DEI office in Florida. It's not just in Florida. It's this entire country. Everything is happening at the same time. There's cap copycat bills in Texas and Ohio and even up north. Um, and we're also seeing it's at the same time, like you said, that the Supreme Court overturned affirmative action in Roe v. Wade. So it's all this big struggle that's happening in the country that is really being pushed forward by people like DeSantis and his agenda. Well, you know. I understand. I understand what you're saying. And I think you're absolutely right that you have to focus on holding your ground, but also yeah. at the same time, positing a vision, a yeah. more idea, a more ideal vision of a bigger freedom dream that we're going for. And, and I'll give you, it's not completely analogous, but a couple of things come to mind. One is that we fought to end the war in Vietnam, stop the war. Mm -hmm. But what we were really fighting for was to end imperialism or the the fountain of all wars, you know. So we were trying to kind of say both, and you don't want to le let hold of any. Or a better analogy might be: I'm very involved in in abolitionist work in the prisons here in Illinois, and and you know, 
on the one hand, we had a very successful campaign 20 years ago to do away with the death penalty, to abolish the death penalty. And to our great shock and surprise, Illinois led the nation in doing away with the death penalty. So there are lessons there. But when we did away with the death penalty, all the liberals immediately said, great, we'll resentence those people to life without possibility of parole, or what we call death by incarceration. So we're we're fighting against the death penalty, and at the same time, fighting to abolish the prisons as a, to, to build a world in which prisons are, you know, an anachronism kind of. So so that, that tension, I think, is something we always have to keep in mind. We want to fight for the the right to, to women's bodily integrity, but it's a bigger question than Roe v. Wade. So we want to fight for the right to abortion access, but there's a much bigger question lurking there. And I think we want to, don't we want to hold on to both? Definitely. And I think the biggest lesson from, you know, all this organizing and even the things that we've won in our case so far is that um, what it takes to to win anything, what it takes to get the charges dropped is by organizing and uniting people against a common enemy. You know, in this case, it's DeSantis, but in other cases, it's, you know, like the rich administrators at other schools, right, who want to cut right. this or that program or fire, you know, um, this set of workers. Uh, it's about learning how to fight and that when you fight, you can win. And if you don't fight, then you don't deserve to win is what a famous activist from Chicago Absolutely. said. Absolutely. Yeah, to win. You know, so I think that's the the biggest thing that we want to to kind of spread to people and what SDS has always been about. Actually, I was thinking as you were talking about where you're traveling, and I thought, now you've gotten to Chicago, and now that you're here, I'm sure you don't want to go anywhere else. You don't want to go back to Florida because you're in Chicago, <laughs> for Christ's <laughs> sake. This is this is my favorite place. Um, I've been away. I've lived in the West Coast, the East Coast, and a lot of other places, but this is my my really my my sweet spot. Um Another crazy question. This probably is we're drawing to an end, but what did your mom think when you were arrested? Uh, yeah, well, so um, since I wasn't arrested right away, I actually told my parents about it while I was driving to the jail to make sure they were okay and to release them. So I texted my mom like, hi, um, I'm on my way to jail right now to pick up my roommate and three others who were arrested. <laughs> um, so they really kind of knew about the situation. Um, and when I found out I was being charged, um, I was sitting in class. It was actually a women's and gender studies class, which is kind of ironic since they're trying to cut that. But I was sitting in class when I got an email from the school saying that they had attended to charge me criminally and that they were charging me academically as well. So I was facing expulsion as uh, on top of the five years in prison. So I immediately ran out of the class and called my mom and my dad as well. And they've both been very supportive. We don't have the same politics, but they are very angry about what's happening to me. So, yeah. Isn't that wonderful? My 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 mom always said about me, um, Bill's a good boy, you know. I mean, he's a, even though even though he does things that are far beyond my comprehension, um, he's a really a good guy at heart. So I love I love I love parents for that reason. Yeah. And how about you, Chrisley? What'd your mom think? Um, my mom has actually passed. I'm she sorry. was um, that's okay. She's a nurse and you know, she worked really hard and um ended up dying of cancer but my partner's mom has been super super supportive she's been like liking everything she actually there's um a journalist who i hope i hope her story comes out but she's been um, working on a story about exactly who we are um down in the tampa bay area like kind of more of like a personal story um and um shout out to trish <laughs> 
Shout out to Trishla Charity. Um, yeah, she actually spoke to them and uh, said that she was proud of us. And yeah, she did. She came to our first court appearance. And really? um, yeah, so she's been super supportive and knows that the judges also, it impacts what the, of course. What the court thinks seeing family out there. And it's not fair because there's all kinds of things that happen to people's family, but um, whoever can come out, support us, they've been coming out. It's super important. People underestimate their own power. And when we're organized and standing shoulder to shoulder and heart to heart, we can get a lot done. When my partner was in prison, I had printed up a bunch of little postcards with the picture of our three sons. And, and I passed them out every time we had a a meeting and I'd ask people to please write the judge. But when we went in for one of the hearings, he had about 400 of these postcards on his desk. I don't know. I don't think it made him change his idea of, you know, capitalism or the law, but <laughs> I think, I think he still noticed. I think he noticed. And, and one of the very important things that happens is that we had a half a million people on the, uh, in Washington, D.C. during the Vietnam War, and Richard Nixon sent out word that he didn't know we were there. Now, that's a very important tactic of the powerful. They have to tell you you're irrelevant. They have yeah. to tell you that you don't count. And what I love about you two and about your about the five of you and the, and the movement as a whole is you're telling people you do count and what you think matters and your your presence matters and, and your protest matters. So, Keep doing that. And and one last thing that keeps comes comes to my mind is when they ban women and gender studies, when they ban ethnic studies in Arizona, I mean, clearly they want the, the big lie, the big myth of America to be to take hold and not be questioned. But I think we have a huge responsibility to explain to the public, to a broader public, what women and gender studies is. It's not just a place to hang out and do girl things. I mean, it's really, <laughs> it's, it's, it's much more complicated than that. And it's got real, real scholarly chops. It's got real, um, research, um, accomplishments as well as potential. And I think we have to really spread the word of what, what we're talking about when we say in shorthand, women and gender studies or ethnic studies. It matters and it matters to the future of our, of our, humanity and but it matters so deeply that we should really explain it take a minute to explain it and move beyond the rhetoric you know i think yeah yeah i mean moments of gender studies it is more than just like one thing like i said but like you said um but really in my classes like i got to really explore different identities in the society and how like systematically we exist i guess in society like looking back at the history of how these identities have been constructed which is typically rooted in things like capitalism so i don't know i think like women's gender studies is the way that it's positioned in a lot of universities it's very like underfunded but they have a really opportunity to dig deeper into a lot of issues mm -hmm. i mean i think you you said earlier that these ethnic studies women gender studies black studies these things are the result of struggle 40 years yeah. ago and 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 the struggle was to make visible what is intentionally kept invisible. So I think it's hugely important to 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 make that point and to get yeah. that out. Yeah. And ethnic studies. Other, oops, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. Go ahead. Yeah, and I think ethnic studies are so important too because it's it's actual history, right? It's our history. I think people have a right to learn about these things. But what DeSantis is trying to do is he's trying to whitewash history. They don't Absolutely. want us to know about how we ended up where we are. They don't want us to know about the history of slavery or Jim Crow, but these are things we must learn, especially if we want to progress forward. Absolutely. Well, uh, one last historical note, which is you were arrested on March 6th. 
And March 6, 1970 is when three of my comrades were killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when the Weather Underground came into being, was March 6, 1970. And as I told you, I never resigned from SDS, so I'm still a member. I never resigned from the Weather Underground either, so I'm still a member of that too. And now I'm a member of the Tampa Five Broader Coalition. Right. So, um, <laughs> so I really appreciate you coming and talking to me and, and getting a hold of me. I didn't know you were in town, and I'm just thrilled to have talked to you. And I really wish you well on your travels and on your struggle. Thank yes. you. Thank you. It was great to meet you, Bill. Thanks Thank for having me. Thank you so me. much. Thank you yeah. so much. Travel well. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can toward joy and justice, peace and freedom. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the Generative and Provocative Podcast, Ergo co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Pallas Shaw. Let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can toward joy and justice, peace and freedom. Let's try to stay all the way human. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a force of hope and repair. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.